Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Aren't you glad to be a part of a church that's not afraid for love to get messy? Listen, I want to invite you into this next installment, this next part of an ongoing study that we are having about what it means to gather around a table like the one set by our Lord. So for today, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew, the 22nd chapter. As you're turning to Matthew 22, I'll remind you where we've been. Jesus keeps doing things that change lives. We come across these moments in his earthly ministry where he's teaching and healing Challenging, reproving, lifting up, inspiring, transforming people. And curiously enough, they keep happening around these tables. His earthly ministry begins around a kind of table, a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. His earthly ministry somewhat ends at a table at the Last Supper with those closest to him. And in between those two tables are all these table moments And we know exactly what the gospel writers are up to. They're attempting to trigger our theological imaginations because they know that for generations there has been a long and abiding hope that there is coming a day at the end of days when God will set this table like a banquet And all of the broken who have ever been scattered will be gathered. And all those who have ever been afraid will be comforted. And all those who have ever hungered or thirsted for any level of righteousness at all will have the choicest meats and the wines that are well aged at this table that one day is coming. And yet, Jesus keeps teaching A principle that I've been trying to keep us aware of this series, it's this. The degree to which you and I set space at the table of our hearts, right here and right now with one another, is the degree to which that kingdom that's coming will break in to the right here and now. If we believe that there is coming a day when God will spread a table like that, then we ought to live now as if that day's coming and in so living It breaks in even as we speak. Which is, by the way, why this Tennessee fan is wearing a red tie today. (laughs) Because we are to live proleptically as if there's coming a day when around the same table there will be volunteers and dogs dining with one another. And if we live toward that day, maybe it breaks in a little bit here today. 
Oh, yesterday I was texting some people during a big game that happened to take place. And I, and I said in the text to a fellow volunteer friend, Jesus, keep me near the cross. <laughs> I don't want to out them, but I will say that they replied with, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. <laughs> to which I then, to my delight this morning, see, I texted back, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or sorrows like sea billows roll, right? Beloved, we, we got to practice in this life the kind of togetherness we'll share in the next. And we do that by sharing a table, even if we wish that table were set in another room. Yeah. But I've been saying that kind of thing for five weeks now. And I've been saying, hey, everybody's welcome. All means all, everybody can come to the table. But you know, I need to tell you something about this table. In fact, there are two things that you need to know about this table. There are a couple of things required of you at this table and of me. It is a table that will be like a, oh, like a great party, a wedding banquet that is to come, yes. But you gotta know a couple of things. Number one, you gotta show up. If you are to live an experience now that somehow hastens that party that is to come, you've got to learn to show up now. And you know what the other thing is you need to know about this party? There is a dress code. Yeah. We've got to learn to show up and there is a dress code. Matthew chapter 22, verse one. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a, a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. How are you going to not come to an event like that? To an experience of such magnitude, how are you going to have an invitation to an experience as glorious as a wedding feast for the son of the king and just not come? You may remember last week when we were talking, I shared with you some information about Emily Post, remember the great queen of etiquette, the author of the book Etiquette, and, and one day she was asked the question, what's the most appropriate way to turn down an invitation to dine at the White House? She said, an invitation to the White House is not an invitation, it's a command and it precludes all other previous engagements. There are some moments in this life, this mortal life now, to which you and I are invited to experience a foretaste of that which is to come, but you, you gotta show up. They chose not to show up, and the text continues again. He sent other slaves saying, tell, tell those who have been invited, look, I, I have prepared my dinner, my, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it 
and went away. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest (laughs) seized his slaves, mistreated them, and, and killed them. The most disturbing part of this parable thus far is that curious phrase, they made light of it. I've been thinking about that phrase this week and I can't get it out of my mind. To have been invited to something of such magnitude and to make light of it. You know, in Greek, the phrase that's used there is a phrase that means to deny it to reject it, to not think much of it, or to be indifferent to it. I don't think that there could be another word in the English language so tragic as indifference. To be indifferent to something means that you are presented with an option, an opportunity. Maybe you're presented with an invitation to an event, an experience, or or an invitation to a relationship. And to be indifferent to it means you stand in front of that invitation, you look it square in the eyes, and you're like, "Mm, eh. As if to say, I could not possibly care any less for this option. You know, there are invitations you receive and some of them you put them on the refrigerator with a magnet so that you remember them. Others find their way in the middle of all the political ads that stuff your mailboxes and they make their way to the trash to be indifferent. It has been said that the opposite of love is not hate, right? The opposite of love is indifference to not care. And what troubles my heart about that this morning is I think about what it took to set the table. The costliness of setting this table that's been made for you and me. And I'm not talking about the costliness of the china or the silver or the food or the well-aged wines. I'm talking about the costliness of the life of our host who paid everything that this banquet would be made available and that we might eat freely and drink freely and be alive. This is a banquet where the broken and scattered are gathered and healed. He was was beaten for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our sins were upon him. And in a choice that he made, He allowed us to hang him high and stretch him wide and in humiliation before the whole world, he absorbed into his very frame every source of humiliation and shame and brokenness that you and I deserved in order to invite you and me to a table. And when I think about being indifferent to the costliness of his life that I might have life. It reminds me of a poem written by Studdart Kennedy. He, he was, a, he was a, a priest and also a poet who lived at the turn of the 20th century and he, he lived in Great Britain and he wrote about what would happen if Jesus came to our city of indifference. The poem is entitled Indifference. He lived in Birmingham and this is what... He said, when Jesus 
came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drave great nails in hand and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep for those were crude and cruel days and human life was cheap. When, when Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They never hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender and would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still, Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained a winter rain and soaked him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see, and Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. Beloved, it makes a difference whether or not we are indifferent to the invitation of Christ to life And I believe that we are living in an age and in a world that has grown indifferent to all that is provided for us. A feast of well-aged wines and choice meats where all who hunger and thirst may be fed, where the broken and scattered are gathered and healed, yet we're indifferent. But you know who I blame? I don't blame the indifferent of this world. (laughs) No. I blame us. I blame we who believe that there is coming a banquet at the end of the age but don't live as if it's true at all. I blame we who believe there's coming a day when all the broken and scattered are gathered and healed in an environment of truly eternal healing love and yet we so order our lives even though we believe there's coming a day when all shall be reconciled and redeemed, we order our lives in such a way as to still divide among ourselves and cast down one another and shame each other and judge one another and we live brokenness deliberately. And then... You look around and the very world of individuals who surround your life, the very ones who actually literally are longing for wholeness, when they begin to look for something different in you and me, they examine our lives and they see nothing compelling enough to be drawn to a second look. I blame we who believe that there's a banquet coming but we don't live like it now. Because if we don't live as if there's a banquet coming, no one will know that there is. I believe what the world needs, what our church needs, is just one or two who are willing to so order our lives 
that anyone who would examine our lives might see in us a broad welcome, a table in our hearts where there is a feast of love and reconciliation and redemption. You know what they need to see? They need to see people like living parties that are to come. And the greatest example of what it looks like to order your life in such a way that you are a party waiting to happen, a kingdom party waiting to unfold is in the well-known story of Tony Campolo. He's long ago a professor at Eastern Baptist University, a sociologist, a professor, he's also a preacher and he was asked one day to, to speak at a conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. Note to self when you are invited to speak or do anything in Honolulu, Monty, we go in Jesus' name to Honolulu. <laughs> he went to Honolulu from the East Coast, which meant that there was a long delay in his body clock, so he got there late, and it felt even later, and that means when you travel that distance, you wake up at about three o'clock in the morning, and he woke up about three o'clock in the morning looking for something to eat, and to his surprise, even in a city like Honolulu, there were no restaurants open, but he did find if he turned down this one alley, this one, one way, there was a, a diner. He described it as kind of a gr- greasy spoon. He walked in, there were no tables and no booths, just a, just a bar with bar stools lining the bar, and he takes a seat and he grabs a menu and it kind of sticks to his hand. And, It's it's kind of nasty. He's afraid to even open it because in his words, if I opened it, I was afraid something extraterrestrial would fly out of it. About that time, the owner of the joint comes by in what he describes this way, a fat guy in a greasy apron. He sets his cigar down and says, what do you want? Campolo says, "Uh, give me a coffee and a donut. So the guy whose name was Harry fitting, does this, grabs a donut and hands it to him. He's eating his donut and drinking his coffee and he hears the little bell that's hung from the handle of the door behind him begin to ring because the door flings open and in walks about seven or eight prostitutes. Half of them sit to his right and half to his left and he says, in that moment, it occurred to me how odd this looked. A Baptist professor flanked by prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. But he hears them talking and the one next to him begins to tell her friend, you know, tomorrow is my birthday. I'll be 39. And her friend said, so? What do you want me to do about it? What what do you want me to sing you a song? Want me to sing happy birthday to you? What do you want, a cake? Am I supposed to make you a cake, throw you a party? No, knock it off. Look, I, no. Why do you, why you have to be so mean? I'm not, I don't want anything from you. I'm just telling you, it's my, it's my birthday. And then he, she said something that Campolo registered. She said, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why, why would I expect one now? So they finish their chatter, they drink their coffee, and they leave. Campolo has an interesting idea. He calls Harry over. Hey, Harry, come here. Do they come in about the same time every Every night, he said, yep, 3.30 on the dot. He said, well, I got a crazy idea. What do you say you and I decorate the joint and throw this girl here, who, Agnes? Agnes, throw Agnes a birthday party. 
He said, mister, that's a great idea. He calls to his wife, Jenny, Jenny, get out here. She did all the cooking. You're making a birthday cake. (laughs) Tomorrow we're throwing a party for Agnes. So they divided up the responsibilities and Campolo went to Kmart, picked out some, some crepe paper and a poster board. They came about 30 minutes before they were to arrive the next morning. They decorated the joint, hung crepe paper, put a sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes, right on the mirror across from the bar. The wife had put word on the streets that this was going down. And he said by 3.15 that night, virtually every prostitute in Honolulu was crammed in that tiny, tiny diner. And sure enough, at about 3.30, in walks Agnes and her friends and the place erupts with surprise. Happy birthday, Agnes. Happy birthday to you. And they sing her happy birthday and she is in utter shock. She can't move. She's eyes wide open. And then as they're singing into a great crescendo of celebration, Harry's wife comes behind with this cake out from the back and the the candles are, are glowing. Happy birthday, Agnes. And she loses it. She's overwhelmed and she's weeping like a like a baby. They have to steady her. They find a seat for her to sit at the booth, at the bar, and they they stop singing, and Harry then says, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow them out. Whole place is gonna burn up. Blow out the candles, Agnes. She blows the candles out. Hands her a knife and says, cut the cake, Agnes. We gotta cut the cake. We can't stay here all night. And she says to him, Harry, would you mind, could I just, would it be okay if I just hung on to it for a little bit? I want to take it and show my mom. Well, that's your cake, Agnes. You can do what you want to do with it. So she she picks up, she says, I'll be right back. My, my, My mom is just two doors down. She picks up this cake like it's the holy grail. And she turns and the crowd parts as she walks through the crowd, through the door. It slowly closes behind her. The bell rings and you could hear a pin drop. Nobody spoke. Campolo looked around at this diner filled with prostitutes, stunned with silence. And you know what he says? He says, why do you say we pray? (laughs) And he began to pray for Agnes. And he prayed that Agnes would be delivered from this life of shame and degradation. He prayed for healing, that she would be healed from all the horrible things that men had done to her. When he finished with this prayer, there was not a dry eye in the house. When he said, in Jesus' name, amen, Harry from behind the bar said, hey, you lied to me. What did I lie about? You said you were a professor. You're not. You're a preacher. You're a preacher, aren't you? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm a preacher. What, What kind of church do you go to, preacher? He said, in this moment of clarity that came to him, he said, to all these prostitutes in this diner looking back at him. I'll tell you what kind of church I belong to. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. Yeah. And then, and then Harry says, no, you don't. He says, you don't. There's no church like that. Because if there was a church like that, I'd join a church like that. 
I'd be a part of a church like that. And I'm here to tell you that story this morning because that is what the church has been intended to be the whole time. To be a place so safe that you don't have to be transformed to come, but if you stay long enough, you just might. How bold would it be to become a church willing to throw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. and why? Because if we are going to experience the party that is to come, you gotta practice the party right here and now. You have to be able to create space at the table of your own heart to welcome all of those who are unfinished and all of those who are imperfect and then in time you realize it was you the whole time. But if you wanna belong to a church like that and be a part of a kingdom like that, you not only have to show up, but be careful, a dress code is required. Do you know that this story that Jesus is talking about, it continues on by, by him telling what happened when the king was stood up. He sends out all these invitations and nobody comes. They, they made light of it. They were indifferent to it. They didn't show up. And so he loses. He loses it. He goes and destroys those who had destroyed his people. And then an interesting thing happens. He says, I want you to go out into all the streets and gather everyone into my wedding hall. And then there's a phrase, both good and bad came and filled the wedding hall. But then he looked and saw that there was one there who didn't have on a wedding garment and he loses it again. He says, bind him hand and foot and throw them into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you back away from this story and you realize the weirdness, the strangeness of this story. Here's a guy who wants to throw a party and nobody comes, so he goes and invites everybody else and they come. But one of them is not dressed appropriately and he punishes him. Well, it seems odd until you realize that in the first century, in this particular context, when you throw a wedding feast like that, typically, wedding garments are included. You can come with your own wedding garment, but if you don't have one, one is provided because the wedding garment symbolizes, it makes a statement about why you're there. It says, I'm putting on something that shows everyone at this party, I'm here for something beyond me. I'm here to celebrate something that is bigger than me and not about me. And the king comes to this guy and he doesn't have one. He has refused to put one on as if to demonstrate to the rest of the party, this doesn't apply to me. Do you know that the wedding feast that God is setting for all of us, this, this table that I keep preaching about these many weeks, it is set in such a way where there is a dress code. It matters what you wear, not to get into the party, but if you're at the table long enough, a change is required. A change will come. Not to get to the table, not to be invited to the table, but here's the thing. If you sit at the table with our holy host long enough, things change. You change. 
You start in many ways to take off the old garments of hatred and bitterness and judgmentalism and, 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 and racism or uh, exclusion. And we, we take off all the old garments that used to define our lives and we put on a garment that actually resembles, well, the host himself. That's why in so many places Paul speaks about this. Like in Galatians, we read it this way. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, watch this phrase, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male nor female, no longer Republican or Democrat, no longer rich or poor, educated or uneducated, the in, the out. When you show up at this table, no matter what got you there, you are to put on the clothing of the host who invited you in the first place. That's why Paul continues on in the letter to the Romans and he, he gets really pointed about it. He says, besides this, you know what time it is. How it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. Before we move past, let's go back to that. To wake from sleep. Do you realize how many of us are sleepwalking through our lives? Not realizing that we are meant to be walking parties that are to come in the kingdom, but we sleepwalk through our lives. Go on to the next. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put on, this dressing language. Let us live honorably as in the day, not reveling in drunkenness, not in debauchery or licentiousness, two of my favorite words, not in quarreling or jealousy. Instead, oh, the language, put on, get dressed in, suit up the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then it gets really pointed in Colossians when we hear these words, therefore, as God's chosen ones, the ones chosen to come to the table, That's everybody. God has chosen for all to come to the table. So as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, watch this, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Those are the garments that are required to stay at the table. Because the longer you stay at the table, those become your garments. You put on Christ. And the longer you're with him, the more you become like him. So there is a dress code. It matters how you walk around in your limited life. It matters what you put on in the morning in your mind and heart because others will see determined by what they see you wearing in your mind and heart. They will see if there's anything compelling enough to come to the party themselves. 